Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco's Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more. This is, uh, so uh, what I have to tell you is that I have done public speaking uh, all of my adult life. I've done public speaking in front of huge audiences and small audiences, and I will tell you my greatest fear has always been this, showing up to give a talk and no one else comes. And while I'm hoping that you're laughing at that joke, I can feel the panic kind of rising for me. Um, I'm beginning to shake. My breath is getting a little short. My mouth is getting dry. And as someone who has a lot of anxiety in life, I can feel the panic attack that is just past my fingertips. And if I'm not careful, I will go down like a rock. It's happened to me before. So I'm going to do something that I have been taught to do over the course of my adult life. I'm going to do some self-calming. I'm going to take a a breath. The first one, I can never have be deep, but I can do a second breath. It's a little deeper. Hold it, and you can do this with me. Let it go out. And you notice I, I raise my hands and lower them, and I can picture that I'm pushing the panic down. So it gets down to about knee level, so it can't really take me out now. I, like many other people in the world, have had traumatic experiences. And when I have the panic attacks come on and I practice this self-soothing, I find myself always always honoring the men and women who have survived war, either as combatants or civilians, whose lives have taught us so much about trauma. And we know that history because a little over 100 years ago, someone experiencing what I was just experiencing would have been called yellow or a coward. And I can't imagine how horrible that must have been. But then in World War I, we started to call it shell shock with very little understanding, except that men who had been at the trenches really suffered terribly. And then in World War II, we started to call it battle fatigue, recognizing that it's something that happens in the body, that something gets so tired that you can't bear it. And in Vietnam, we started to call it post-traumatic stress disorder, recognizing that it's not a come and gone thing. We came to recognize that it's not just a physical, a psychological injury or lack, it is a physical injury. To understand trauma, we have to know that it is an event that is life-threatening, that you know is life-threatening, you perceive as life-threatening. It can be a series of events or a whole set of circumstances that surround you, and it has a lasting adverse effect on you. Our bodies respond to trauma in a very specific way. What they do is they turn on a switch that brings adrenaline racing through your system, 
cortisol rises up and time slows down. Most of us have had this experience, maybe in a car accident or seeing somebody get injured, time slows down and we have that moment to decide, shall I fight? Shall I activate my muscles in such a way that I can push off any enemy? Do I run, turn quickly, which is kind of what I feel like doing right now? Or do I freeze, become invisible, so that the threat, the predator, won't know that I'm here? This is a huge change to our bodies. It shifts everything, and we become immobile and then active. In an ideal world, what would happen is what would happen to animals out in the wilderness. We would take a moment after the predator's gone, and we'd shake off, breathe it out a little bit, walk around. Maybe if I'm a small animal, I would climb into a little cave, and I would sleep it off for a while. But however I do it, the cortisol would come back down, the adrenaline would shift off. But for people who are faced with trauma within their bodies, it becomes remembered, that event never goes away. And you never really go back to that resting state. It remains ever ready to be activated. Any slight thing that's reminiscent of the original can set us off. The adrenaline goes, the cortisol goes, and we become unpredictable in that moment. We are hypervigilant, hyperreactive. We see this in all kinds of people around us, whether they are soldiers returned from the battlefield or people living on the streets. Constant trauma leaves us in a highly reactive place. And it means that for many who are really in the depths of it, that they can never rest because even when it's quiet, the quiet is foreboding and they are caught in the anguish between rest and action and they never know what to do. The world is always threatening. Our friend Linda Chrisman, who is a trauma healer, says when a person feels threatened, they see the world as unsafe and they act accordingly. So all those things that we see people who live out of trauma doing that we just can't understand, it makes sense when you take on the worldview that the world is not safe. Maybe they do things like take obsessive precautions at night, checking every window and door. Maybe they call people repeatedly to make sure they're not sick. People who have suffered life-threatening illnesses will often become hyper-worried about another illness. If I could get cancer in this part of my body, I can get it in another part of my body. If I have a heart attack, I can have a stroke. We become obsessively worried. That is what the experience of trauma and living with trauma is about. And once we know that a bad thing can happen, even those of us who don't live in high levels of post-traumatic or persistent trauma, what we know is that that bad thing can happen again. As human beings, we can never go back as the animals in nature can to a place where we are completely normal completely even, completely resolved. We know that the world will not be safe. It is not safe. The world cannot be predictable. It is not predictable. Things happen. Sickness happens. Unemployment happens. Homelessness happens. Pandemics happen. And things get shaken up, and they become completely unpredictable. We get aroused. The hormones are going. We are prepared to make massive decisions. And then we have to figure out what to do. When the trauma is over, when things are changing, 
That's what Carl Sandburg was talking about. When the strife of war, when the trauma is over, then begins the strife of peace, of figuring out how we live with that trauma, which has become part of us. For some people, it becomes an identity, and they become stuck in a way, and healing has yet to begin. What we need to think about is not about getting over trauma, not leaving it behind, but how we integrate it into our lives. We begin to learn what to do when the panic attack is just beyond our fingertips, what to do when we feel the panic rising up around us, how we push it back down to a manageable level and keep ourselves steady, letting the adrenaline roll away, the cortisol even out, and then we can breathe. Viktor Frankl, a survivor of the Holocaust, an incredible philosopher, one of the things he said was, between the moment of stimulation and response is the one moment of wisdom we have, the moment to choose what we will do. When we are immediately triggered by trauma, that moment of wisdom is very, very small, but it's still there and we can choose to breathe. We may not be able to choose anything else, but choose to breathe. Take that deep breath, get started on relaxing. For me, that is what we are called upon to do on Memorial Day, to remember all those people who have taught us so much about trauma, having lived through those terrible wars and having not been understood for so many generations. We understand a little more now, and I hope we act more compassionately. We also act more compassionately to those who have survived the trauma of violence in relationships, living on the streets, illness, accidents, we know so much more. And we now know that we need to remember just how strong and how delicate we are. Like the poppies we celebrate today, we have to remember that we are hardy and we are delicate, and we need to take care of each other. Can I just say I miss having you all here? As the music was playing, I was imagining you coming up and lighting the candles, and um, just to have your warmth in this room. So I'm grateful that you are with us. When I first sat to gather my thoughts about this Memorial Day service, I had the image of the red poppies rise up in my mind. It was a memory from my childhood. Around Memorial Day, we would go get them in the store for a donation or from the American Legion. And we'd hang them on the car mirror or we'd put them on our button or we'd put them on the end of our pencils. But as in so many of those kinds of traditions in our lives, I had no idea what they represented. Maybe once upon a time I had heard the poem in Flanders Fields, but I learned of it anew as I read about poppies it was written by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, who was moved by the red flowers he saw popping up all over the European battlefields. He noticed a cluster of poppies in Flanders fields in Belgium shortly after a huge battle had killed 87,000 Allied soldiers, including one of his close friends. 
To channel his grief, he wrote the poem in Flanders Fields. And I share a portion of the poem with you. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow. Between the crosses, row on row. That mark our place and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. There is no shortage of grief and anger and trauma in our world. Finding ways to channel them is vital to our staying alive. Some of us may write poetry or paint, while others might exercise or work in gardens and cook or meditate. Maybe you pray, sing or build things, or take photographs. Some of us may simply clean, rearrange furniture, or move little things around always trying to find some sort of balance and beauty, some sort of respite as we process all that we take in and all there is to navigate as we live the complexities of life. For many years now, I have lived in places filled with the harshness of poverty and despair, as well as deep love and inspiring creativity. Poppy-like places that are filled with the beauty of delicate flowers and a life force as hardy and as resilient as weeds. And most important, importantly, a strong sense of community that keeps us all grounded and somewhat sane reminding us that we're in this together. As I was talking on the phone this week with Jackie Hyder, a longtime fool and volunteer, she asked me, what keeps you in the tenderloin and at the fools? Without really thinking, I responded with a line I love from the movie Arthur. It's what I live for. Now in the movie, Hobbes said it was with sarcasm. But when I said it so spontaneously, it's what I live for. It wasn't being sarcastic. I have been thinking of my response since then. Is it really what I live for? There's a big, bright yes Y-E-S, made of cloth that hangs in the entrance of the fool's court. It is a declaration and a permission for all of us who come and go to say yes to life and all the glorious absurdities we encounter throughout each day. The yes hangs there to remind us and encourage us as we move back and forth over the threshold from home into the streets 
from the Tenderloin into the barrios of Nicaragua, down to the chambers of City Hall or up here to the sanctuary of the church. It hangs there to challenge me, to challenge Sharon, to challenge Sam, all of us fools, to say yes. Not only to say yes to life and our longings, but yes, we need to feel the anger and grief at the fact that thousands of people of all ages are homeless and dying on the streets throughout our city and our world. We say yes to our anger that pharmaceutical companies preyed on people to make a profit by promoting an addiction to opioids, and yet we focus the blame on the people living with the consequences of their greed. We say yes to the anger and grief we feel when our friend Cheryl tells us that she only discovered at 34 years old that the pain and restriction in her shoulder that she was seeing the doctor for was because it had been crushed at birth when the doctor yanked her carelessly out of the womb and never bothered to tell her mother he had broken her shoulder. Because that's what some people did to black children, her white doctor told her. When she called to tell her mother what she had discovered, her mother cried. Yes, we say to understanding when we work with people that their trauma is deep and the healing is lifelong, as is the need for compassion and accompaniment. Yes, we say to Carl, a Vietnam vet who has a room in a residential hotel but spends most of his day in the streets. He told me one day, the monsters are too big in my head for this tiny room. Yes, we say to having to grapple with actions of our ancestors. Like Sam's grandfather, she told me once she, that she discovered when she was older that he helped define the targets for the dropping of the atomic bomb. He was a brilliant physicist, and he participated in the dropping of the atomic bomb. We say yes to protesting the violence of war, and we honor the lives of those serving. When our big red yes begins to fade, we take it down and we color it anew with bright red dye and with the ongoing commitment of many people. We invite you this morning to refresh the color of your yes, your Y-E-S, to join us in protesting the violence of war and honoring the lives of those who have served, to never tire for working for peace and justice and the well-being of our earth and every creature, to say yes now, today, 
and into every tomorrow. It is what we live for. Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.